grab a Bible, grab your Bible, or grab one in underneath the chair there, and turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28, and, and in the Bibles that we provide, that's page 878. Page 878 in the Bibles we provide, or Luke 19. We're going to be looking today at verse 28, all the way through chapter 20, verse 8. Well, last week, Tanner preached a great sermon challenging us to engage in business until Christ returns. He challenged us to to invest our time wisely and to steward our time well. So let me just say, personally, God has used that in my life this week to, man, continue to reveal time wasters and where I'm not stewarding well and and, um, and, and to spur me to some repentance and to some renewed and greater stewardship in my life. So I hope he's done the same in your life as well. Well, this past week, we have all been amazed and at the same time heartbroken over the magnitude of the destruction in Moore, Oklahoma. I'm sure by now everyone has seen probably even graphic images of the tornado, the power, the wonder, the marvel, and yet the destruction that it caused. Yesterday, I read an article that was called, A Tornado's Heading Your Way, Now What? Posing the question. Let me pose it to you. Now, I know in Massachusetts, we rarely see tornadoes, and and rarely even the magnitude of that kind, but a tornado's heading your way. Now what? What do you do? Now, most emergency officials suggest that um, if, uh, unless you're in a mobile home, that you should stay inside, get to the lowest floor of your, play, your house, if you've got a basement head there, and to the innermost room. I want to share with you a few examples of what some people did in Moore, Oklahoma. And you guys know the tragedy that came there. There was a woman and her brother who took shelter in their restaurant's walk-in freezer, and they survived. Now, you've seen the images. At points, this tornado looks like, I mean, it's completely destroyed anything in the immediate path. On another occasion, a woman and her baby did the very same thing in a convenience store, and yet they died. Two parallel stories. One is in a freezer, and they're safe. Another does the same thing you would think would provide safety, and there was death. Tammy Miller and her three three boys, 6, 7, and 11, they were in their home in a closet, but changed their minds. They go outside. She throws them in the car, and they start driving off, and they escaped. Her home and her closet completely destroyed. Another woman hid inside her closet and survived unharmed. Now, my goal is obviously not to tell you what to do because those are two contrasting, I've given you a couple contrasting where people were okay and then others that died in doing the very same thing. But thousands were forced with split-second decision-making 
on what they would do in light of the news. A tornado is coming, now what? In the same way, the text today demands a response. It demands that you make a decision and the stakes are even higher than what happened in Moore, Oklahoma. Eternal life and death are at stake. Last week, as Tanner shared in Luke 19, we looked at the parable of the ten minas, and there it says that there was this kingdom and these servants, and then there were citizens who did not want the king to reign over them. And we saw that there were tragic consequences. Well, today, when we come to Luke 19, we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke is that, is that Luke starts to hit the slow-mo on the remote. You see, we've covered roughly 36 years of Jesus' life in the first 18 or so chapters. And now in the last six chapters, we're going to cover roughly one week of his life. And so he slows it down. He's going to paint this picture. And, and what this does communicate is as we reflect on the gospel of Christ and even of these gospels, is that we know the last week of his life is essential to the Christian faith, his death and his resurrection. But as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he's going to make explicit that he is the promised king, and it sets up the decisive confrontation between himself and the Jewish leaders, which ultimately is going to lead to his death. Within a week, he will be hung on a cross. But this text also sets up a decisive confrontation with every single one of you. And it's posing this question. How will you respond to the triumphal entry of Christ? Let me be a little more clear. Who will be your king? Or who is your king? How will you respond to this message Today. So let's turn to Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Of it. I'm going to pause there for right now, and I'm going to introduce our first truth that I believe as we walk through this passage today that, that Jesus wants you to get, and it's this, first of all, that you should delight in Jesus as your king. And as we reflect on that, this first truth, one of the things that we see here is that as we reflect on Jesus as king and delighting on him as king is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Now, just kind of painting the picture of what's going on. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. He's at the Mount of Olivet. It, it rises about 2,600 feet 
above the city looking over Jerusalem. So he's up on this mountain. He's, he's getting near to Jerusalem. He's overlooking the city. And he, he pulls his disciples and he tells them to go and to get a colt. Now, a colt is a young donkey. And he sends them out. And this particular donkey had never been sat on. It must have been destined for a sacred task. It was pure. Now, I want you to notice Jesus explains every single detail of the account. And it happens exactly how Jesus describes it. He says, he he alerts them, they're probably going to ask you, why are you untying it? And he says, and this is how you are to respond. And so the truth that we get from, from this picture that Jesus is the sovereign Lord is that in the midst of this last week of his life, where it's going to appear that everything is spinning out of control, Jesus is completely in control and directing every single event related to his death. You know, when you delight in Jesus as your king, you can trust his sovereign care over your life. He is in complete control. But not only is he in complete control and the sovereign Lord, we also see that Jesus is the promised Davidic king. Let's keep reading verse 35. So they've gone and gathered the colt. They brought it back to him. Verse 35 says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is the promised Davidic King. What picture does Jesus paint? Does Luke paint for us here? They've got this colt. Now they've taken their cloaks and sat it over the colt. They've placed Jesus on it. Now you've got the picture of Jesus heading down towards Jerusalem and they're laying their cloaks on the ground. When we read, when we read the other accounts in Matthew and Mark, we find out that, that there's also palm branches involved here. Luke probably omitted that because of his primarily Gentile context. And, and this is where we get Palm Sunday from. So you've got these palm branches, you've got these cloaks being laid on the ground, and, and this, man, this must be some important person. What's being painted here is the picture of an act of homage, of homage toward this important person that is coming into the city. Now, when Lee and I were in Maine this past fall, we got away for a few days, actually it was just one night, and we were coming back from Ogunkawit, Maine. It's a beautiful place. Love it up there. As we were coming back, there was something startling that happened to us. As we're heading back from Maine on I-95, we noticed that there were no cars on the other side of the road. And we keep driving, and this was like probably for a couple miles, and, and I'm starting to get freaked out because when you're driving on I-95 and you see no cars on the other side of the road, something is wrong, Right? 
And, and as we kept driving, what we noticed is that there were police cars blocking off the exits to get on to I-95 headed north. We were headed south. And then as we keep driving, eventually we see a motorcade leading two SUVs up I-95. Now, I have no clue who it is, but my best guess is that it was probably Mitt Romney who was headed up to Maine. But what did that cause us to do? That caused us to ask a few questions. We were confronted with this motorcade, and we were asking, what's going on, what's happening, and who is this? Place yourself at the triumphal entry. You're watching as the disciples are laying their cloaks in these palm branches, and you're probably asking the very same questions. What's going on here? Who is this? And so you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, okay? There's a donkey and the cloaks and the palm branches. And it, look, it looks like they're headed to Jerusalem. And then you hear the disciples with loud voice start rejoicing and praising God, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and glory in the highest. They're quoting Psalm 118. I've painted it for you up here on the screen. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what I want to do real briefly, I want to compare what we have in Luke with what Matthew describes here. I've got both these on here. We see, we've seen Luke, what we just read. Look at Matthew on the bottom. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We started off this morning singing this song, Hosanna, Hosanna, the God who saves. Now, this Hosanna here, Luke has omitted because of Luke's primarily Gentile context. He's taken the Jewish expressions and he's He's explained them for a Gentile context. But going back to Psalm 118, those, those first two words, save us. Do you see that? You go read your Hebrew and the transliteration of the Greek is Hosanna. Oh, save us. That, that Tanner shared earlier, that, what Hosanna means. It's a cry of salvation. And so they're reflecting on this psalm and they're looking at G Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna. So the... You already, as you're putting the pieces together, you're, you're starting to figure out, okay, th there's something about salvation connected with who this Jesus guy is entering into the city. But notice what else we see. We see Luke say, blessed is the king. And we see Matthew say, Hosanna to the son of David. And what's going on here? As we continue to read, we see that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as the promised son of David, the king of the promised kingdom. This is huge. You actually, Matthew makes this explicit. We don't find this in the Gospel of Luke, but right after, as Jesus is coming in, I want you to see Matthew says this. Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Zechariah 9, 9. I've got Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 here. I want you guys to, to listen as I read through this. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. You've got the prophet Zechariah who's speaking to Israel in the midst of them being exiled out of the promised land. And he's promising, looking forward to this great salvation where God is going to bring his king. And Matthew was saying, this is it. So in the triumphal entry as Jesus, and as they, as they cry out, the whole picture of a donkey, why does Jesus tell them to go get a donkey? This is why. Implicit is Luke, and Luke is Zechariah 9. This is the background by which Jesus says, hey, go get a donkey, because this guy that Zechariah talks about is me. I am this king coming into Jerusalem, and I am bringing salvation. And I want you to notice this. Do you see the contrast between the donkey and the horse? Jesus doesn't come on the war horse. He comes on the donkey, an animal of peace. And you see that word peace? He shall speak peace to the nations. And what about his rule? This idea of a king, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Man, what we have here is Jesus, who is the promised universal and eternal king coming into Jerusalem, the city that is central for the messianic expectations. Jesus is the hope of the nations. And so the implications are clear. Jesus demands a response. If Jesus isn't this promised king, well, let's just keep reading in verse 39. We'll see what should happen. After these, let's go to verse 38. So the disciples saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why does he do that? Look, if Jesus is not the promised king, they should rebuke his disciples. Right? Because what is Jesus claiming here? He is claiming the promises of the Old Testament that he is this promised one. He is the Messiah. In fact, within a week, Jesus is going to be killed as a messianic imposter. They're going to take a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They're going to hang a sign over the, over the cross that says, Hail, King of the Jews, and mock him. Because of this claim to kingship. But do you know what Jesus replies? Does he rebuke his disciples? He doesn't. Look what he says. He answered the Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And just think with me about this for a second. This is a stinging indictment on the leadership. Look, these are the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests. We're going to see later involved here. And, and as, as Bach, one of, the great, one of the great Lucan scholars, says 
that they are being painted dumber than rocks is basically what Jesus says. You guys are dumber than rocks. He continues. He says, inanimate, inanimate objects have a better perception of what God is doing than the people that Jesus came to save. That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. These very religious leaders don't even see the reality of Jesus being this promised king. What do you do when you see something beautiful or excellent? I'll, I'll paint a, a story for you. Yesterday, I got to go see Mark and Gina Schultz. They, they actually have, have given birth and Jackson Douglas Schultz was born a couple days ago. What was it Friday? He was born on Friday, and, and he's doing great. I got to hold him, and, and Gina is doing great, and Mark's hanging in there. And uh, Gina's mom was there. Now, do you guys know what it's like to just watch a grandma just hold a newborn baby? Oh, no. You, you see, they start looking and they, they catch every single detail. And, oh, this looks just like Gina, as, even though it's Jackson. Oh, this looks just like Gina as a baby and the nose and the eyes. And what do you do when you're given something beautiful or excellent? You praise it. Look, our world overflows with praise for things that are great or excellent. You go to a Red Sox or a Bruins game. Anybody watch the Bruins game yesterday? And they pull out a three-to-one victory, and what do you do? Man, did, did you see the game? Did you see? They were down one to nothing, and they came back and won three-to-one, and they're going to the finals of the Eastern Conference? You praise it, and then you invite people into this praise. So this grandma, man, isn't he, isn't he beautiful? What is she saying? She's inviting me to join her into this praise. And so if Jesus really is the king of kings, then he is worthy of all of your delight and joy and praise. And so the text is inviting you. Isn't he marvelous? Praise him with me. That's the implication of the text. So you're confronted with a decision. Jesus demands a response. Will you side with the Pharisees who say rebuke the disciples? Or will you, will you side with the disciples and lay your cloak and palm branches down and cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and submit to Jesus as your king. That's what the text is asking you today. Jesus is sovereign Lord. Jesus is the promised Davidic king. Jesus demands a response. And yet judgment awaits those who reject him. We come to verse 41. And it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, the picture, he's up on this mountain, overlooking directly the temple. So, so he's coming down the mountain. He, he sees Jerusalem. It says, As he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. 
saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem like a parent watching a child make a bad decision. Sometimes as parents, we see our children making decisions that we know are going to have tragic consequences. And he's looking over the city as a parent does their child, and he's broken because he, he knows who he is, and he knows what tragic consequences await their rejection of him as the Messiah. So what does he do? Like a prophet... Jesus predicts the nation's collapse as a tragic fact. In fact, if you were to go read a Jewish historian named Josephus, he would describe what Jesus has predicted will happen. And he describes it in a very similar manner. What Jesus is talking about is the attack of Rome that led to the city's destruction in A.D. 70. In AD 70, the city's attacked, the, the Jerusalem temple is destroyed, and as he says, not one stone upon another is left unturned. The city's leveled, the defeat is total, nothing stands. And this does not bring Jesus to rejoicing. He's broken. But let me pose a question. Why such destruction? Why? It's found in this one line that Jesus says at the end of verse 44. It says, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The nation has missed the opportunity to respond to Jesus. You get the picture? Jesus is coming into the city as the promised Davidic king, and they have rejected him. Hey, look, if Jesus is the one and you reject him, there is no hope. And all that awaits is a fearful judgment before God. And I would say it is a fearful thing to be responsible before God for the rejection of Jesus. As we go back to, to thinking about the Moore, Oklahoma tornado, do you know why tornadoes are so, are so scary? For one, they're... They're one of the most violent storms on the earth in terms of, of not area coverage, but in terms of what it can do. You guys know I love meteorology, and I would have been a meteorologist if I wasn't here right now. Um, but this tornado packed winds of, of up to and even over 200 miles an hour. I cannot even wrap my mind around. I can, only, I can see the destruction. I can see, yeah, that, it had to have been. But even a hurricane... I mean, one of, the, one of the strongest hurricanes that would come do not have winds. Now, the, a hurricane affects a larger area, but it doesn't have winds. But the other scary thing about tornadoes is you can prepare for a hurricane. You can prepare days in advance uh, for a hurricane. You can prepare for a blizzard. We had a huge blizzard this past winter, and 
and the, the blizzard warnings come out usually at least 24 hours in advance. They'll start with a watch and then they'll turn to a warning. But with a tornado, you may have 15 minutes to make a split-second decision with something that is, is even more powerful than a hurricane. This past Monday at 2.40 p.m., a tornado warning was issued for the Oklahoma City area. Big picture. The whole city. Tornado warning, 2.40 p.m. 21 minutes later, 3.01 p.m., this was upgraded to a tornado emergency. 3.01 p.m. Tornado emergency means we've seen the tornado, and it, I mean, go back, you can look at the text the tweets that they're tweeting out. And it's saying, large tornado, you may not even know it's a tornado, it's so large. Because you think of a tornado as a small circulation. This tornado at one point was 1.3 miles wide. So you could even be in the middle of it and not even realize that you're in a tornado. Tornado emergency, we've seen it. Take shelter now. That was at 3.01 p.m. 3.16 p.m., the tornado entered more. 15 minutes after the tornado emergency, it enters more. That was 36 minutes after the initial tornado warning. 3.36 p.m., the tornadoes dissipated. That was 20 minutes after it entered more. What's my point? The reason this was so tragic was because they had no control over these events and they had no way to escape. When you get a tornado emergency, this is so wide that you may not even realize you're in a tornado. I mean, what do you do? I mean, you could think about driving, but the fact about a tornado is, is you don't, there's no predictability. I mean, you, you can't, they couldn't say it's going to go this way. I mean, you, you look at the track and you see wobbles along the track. I mean, there's, there's no way to even predict. You can predict, predict a somewhat trajectory, but, but what do you do? There's no way to escape. Man, you haven't done anything to bring this on yourself. But this is not the case with the judgment of God. You see, we've all been given plenty of warning. Even as you listen today, this is a warning. Jesus has come. He is the promised King. He has died. He has risen from the grave. He's coming back one day. You've been giving a warning. And the what I've been trying to put before you is that this response to, to the tornado emergency, that you should be responding with the same kind of urgency because the consequences are far greater than that of the tornado. You lose not only your life, but you could lose your whole soul. The bad news of God's judgment is that none of us are immune. We all deserve it. Every single one of us. I stand here before you as one who deserves the judgment of God. And yet at the same time, I can proclaim to you today good news. And it's this, Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. The good news today in light of the tragic judgment to come is that Jesus has come to save you. So how will you respond? Because the truth about this judgment is just because Jesus has come, 
You must embrace him as your king. You must delight in him as your king. You must respond by, one, admitting your need, two, asking God to forgive you of your sin and to help you turn from your sin, three, following Jesus from this day forward as the king of your life. Who will you align with? Who will be your king? That's the first truth we see. The second truth we see as we keep reading is that we should worship Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So now he heads into the temple and he's driving out those who were selling. He was driving out the merchants. So just to paint the picture here, what was the temple for? The temple was the place of worship. This is where, I mean, think about this this Passion Week was happening at the same time as the Passover. You've got all of these pilgrims that are coming to the city to worship the the great feast of the Passover. And, And at the Passover... You would, have sac- you would have sacrifices that had to be made at the temple. And so to make it convenient, you've got merchants that were selling things like animals and wine and oil and salt and doves, the things that you would use to sacrifice at the temple. And not only that, you had money changers because the law required a temple tax and, and you had to pay that in shekels. And so you would come and they would exchange your money for that. I mean, these... These were created for convenience, for people coming to worship. But what Jesus does is he responds like a prophet in denouncing their worship. The irony of this is that the temple was to be a place of worship, and Jesus' rebuke is that it was no longer a place of worship. It was a place of commerce. And so what he does is he, first of all, he responds with a positive. The positive is this. My house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7, which is kind of the, the ideal picture of, of the temple. And actually, Isaiah says it's a house of prayer for all the nations. This ideal picture. And, and so the point is, is Jesus is saying, the temple is supposed to be about appropriate worship. And then he turns to the negative. In the negative, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, what Jesus quotes, it's one of the most scathing sermons of the prophet of Jeremiah against the nation of Israel. And I'm giving it to you here. And let's read this. This is what Jeremiah says. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me. You get this picture? This is what they were doing. They were stealing. They were killing people. They're committing adultery. They're, they're lying. He's going, I mean, he's describing the Ten Commandments here. He's just walking through the Ten Commandments and he's laying one after one how they've broken. And this is how they're living. And then they're coming to the temple. He says, and then you're going to come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my, my name and say, we're delivered. We're going to go live however we want, and then we're going to come to the temple and say, God, deliver us. Only to go on doing all of these things. 
You get the picture? They're going to go live a certain way. They're going to come to the temple. God deliver us. And they're going to go continue on in their abominations and their, their disobedience to the Lord. And yet he says this. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? When Jesus says, when he goes to cleanse the temple, and he says it's to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, he's taken this scathing rebuke of Jeremiah and thrown it on the temple in first century Judaism. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Man, unfortunately, which one of these is true? Is it Isaiah's, this house of prayer, or Jeremiah? The reality is, is that what he's just said about Jeremiah is what's true of them. So let me pose a question before you. What should appropriate worship look like? Because we've got to step back and ask a few questions. Because in the previous passage, Jesus has just said in 8070, the city is going to be destroyed. And what Jesus knows and what we know now is that includes the temple. So how, how is a follower of Jesus now supposed to worship when the city is destroyed and the temple is destroyed? So it leads me to this next reality, is that Jesus becomes the new focus of temple worship. I am just briefly want to share a few parallel passages. How do we know this? First of all, Jesus is the new temple. Look here in John chapter 2. A similar account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. We go to Hebrews and we see Jesus is the perfect high priest and sacrifice. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We now have here a picture. The temple has been destroyed, and yet now the temple is Jesus' own body. Not only is he the temple, he's gone into heaven, the most holy place, and he is the high priest. You see, the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies and to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus is now not only the temple, he's the high priest, and yet he's at the same time the sacrifice. You see, all of that in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. They were a shadow of the true reality found in Christ. Jesus is your perfect high priest. Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the authoritative king. And then we see that Jesus is the focus of all worship. When, if we were to continue on in John chapter 4, Jesus has a dialogue with the Samaritan woman. It says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people had to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. You see, Jesus knew that the cleansing of the temple entailed its destruction and a new temple, namely himself. 
We don't worship God now by going to a temple. And let me just clarify this. This isn't a temple here. In fact, we see later on that not only is Jesus the temple, his body, and now we a part of the body of Christ, that, that the church is in fact the temple of God. And that the way we worship is not by coming and bringing sacrifices. It's by looking back to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, placing faith in his sacrifice. And so the way we enter into the presence of God is not by anything good that we've done, but by everything good that Jesus has done. And we worship him by following Jesus as the greatest treasure of our life. So these people were placed with a decision. Are you going to repent of your distorted worship and turn to Jesus? Or are you going to continue in it? Let me just pose this question before you. If Jesus were to walk in here today, what would he say about our worship? What would he say about your worship? Would, would Jesus say, these people on Monday, Tuesday, Monday through Saturday, commit adultery and lie and steal, and then they come here on Sundays and they sing praises, and then they go right back to it on Monday? God, may it never be that we worship you like this, because God desires that you worship in spirit and in truth. So that, man, worship, if you're not worshiping God and honoring Him and obeying Him and following Him Monday through Saturday, well, then you're not worshiping Him on Sunday. So maybe for you today, you need to repent of any distorted worship in your life. Are you completely pure in your relationships with others? Are you fair and just in your business dealings? Do you steal from others time and treasures? Or do you practice generosity? Is there anger that needs to be confessed and repented of? Do you need to forgive somebody today? Are there lies that need to be confessed? Are you coveting anyone's goods, resources, relationships? And let me make this clear. I'm not telling you to repent of those so that God will accept you. I'm telling you to look to Jesus as your perfect sacrifice and he is the motivator. He died for those sins. How can you live in them any longer? And so the motivation to worship Monday through Saturday is the gospel. God has accepted you. Jesus has died. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus' death is also imminent, as you can imagine. Look what Jesus has done. He's entered the temple this way. He's just, he's just laid this rebuke on the leadership. Now he's gone into the temple, and he has cleansed the temple. And so what do we see in verse 47? It says, And he was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people. Th these three people, they're now united. Jesus has united all of the leadership of Israel, but yet he has united them against him. And it says, and they were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus' death is imminent. Look, there's no turning back now. What Jesus has done will bring on his death. 
And yet there's a complicating factor. The people are hanging on his very words, his growing popularity. So they can't come and take him quite yet. Delight in Jesus as your king. Worship Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And then finally, trust Jesus as the authoritative king. We come to verse 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, those three sets of people came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you this authority? It makes sense, right? Jesus, by what authority are you doing this in the temple? Who gave you this authority to, as a prophet, heap this judgment on us? It's a natural question, right? By what authority? It's a twofold question. Who gave you this authority and what kind of authority do you have? And how does Jesus respond? Verse 3, he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus says this, if you're going to deal with me, you're going to have to deal with John the Baptist. And Jesus isn't dodging the question. He's actually raising the stakes. Why is this question so difficult for them? Well, who did John point to? John was asked, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? He says, no, there's one coming after me that's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. He's the one. I am not the one. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And so the problem was twofold. First of all, if they acknowledged that John was from heaven, then they need to repent because they did not follow him. If John was from heaven and John said Jesus is the one, they have not embraced Jesus. So if they acknowledge John as the prophet then they've got to repent and turn and trust Jesus. The other problem is if they deny his authority, the people believe that John was sent from God. And so now they're going to have the people that they're going to incur public wrath. So what do they do? Let's see what happens. Verse 5. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, and they did not know, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. Their private conference reveals their own hypocrisy. They nowhere think about answering honestly in this. And then, second, their silence indicts them. Because of the offices they hold. Think about this. These are the, the greatest religious leaders of Judaism. And they say, hey, we don't know. You want to hire them to be your leader? So it's an indictment. You're telling me that you, can't even, you don't even know who John the Baptist is? It's an indictment on them. And so since they reply no comment, what does Jesus reply? Verse 8, and Jesus said to them, no comment. Neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus tell them what authority he did his things? He did, implicitly. Here's how he did it. Since Jesus and John are linked, the answer to Jesus' question 
lies in the answer to the question about John the Baptist. The source of Jesus and John's authority is the same. It's heaven. And they know it. And so Jesus and John are both God's messengers who act and speak for him. And the, fail, the leaders fail to recognize this. There's an underlying question that I'll, I'll close with. And whose authority will you trust? It's the, it's the question throughout the text. Who is, whose authority will you trust? Are you going to trust the religious leaders? Are you going to trust in Jesus and side with the disciples? What does it look like? to trust Jesus as the authoritative king of your life? I'll conclude with one verse, and it's this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The church has one mission. This is it. So to trust Jesus as the authoritative king. Go back real quick here. It means that you go and make disciples. And what are we looking? What does a disciple of Christ look like? At the very bottom. Teach them to obey Everything I've commanded you. To trust Jesus as your authoritative king means that everything Jesus says, you go and obey. And so if you want to evaluate this week what, what your worship should look like, I mean, just go back to the Gospels, and this is a great question. Hey, Jesus, what did you say, and am I doing it? And repent and follow him as the king of your life. And that is the point of the sermon. Jesus is the promised prophet, priest, and king who demands your complete worship. How? will you respond? Who will be your king? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And God, we pray that our worship would be found acceptable to you through Christ. God, would you give us great delight and rejoicing in Christ the same way the disciples did at, at the triumphal entry God, would you give us worship that is pure and appropriate and God-honoring? And God, would you help us to trust you in all things as the authoritative king of our life? And so that we would be about your mission, making disciples and obeying everything you've commanded us to do. God, help us to this end, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.